Today on the Daily Scoop podcast from the Scoop News Group, an anniversary for the president's management agenda, the task list ahead for the Pentagon to win its zero trust battle, and rethinking the federal fleet for the electric age. It's Thursday, December 1st, 2022. Welcome to the Daily Scoop podcast sponsored by Cisco. Every afternoon, you'll learn what's going on today in government. I'm the host of the Daily Scoop podcast, Francis Rose. Cyber leaders from DOD, DHS, HHS, and a lot of other agencies will be on hand for the Security Transformation Summit. It's next Thursday at the Ritz-Carlton in Pentagon City. You can find a link to read more about the summit and register in today's show notes at thedailyscooppodcast.com. president's management agenda is just over a year old today. The Office of Management and Budget released it November 18th, 2021. Terry Gertens, president and CEO of the National Academy of Public Administration and former Deputy Assistant Secretary of Labor. Terry, welcome. Thanks for coming on the program. Some new stuff a year into the president's management agenda. What do you make of where we are a year after the original release of the PMA vision? And what do you make of the new things that we see out of OMB about it? Welcome. Thank you, Francis. Always happy to be here. And we are always happy to celebrate the first birthday of a president's <laughs> management agenda. <laughs> I think the last time this happened, we had cupcakes, but um, hard to do that virtually. That's right. <laughs> um, you know, when they first released this president's management agenda a year ago, there were some things we remarked on that were different. And I think as we look at it a year on, those have proved to be pretty interesting, especially the linkage of the PMA to a set of values, right, that focus on equity, dignity, accountability, and results. And one of the things that's been most remarkable to us in Napa as we've watched this is to see the application of those values, especially equity and dignity. They just permeate every conversation that you have with anybody in the White House or the federal agencies around their programs, the, the focus on equity is just core and it comes through in everything that they do. And I think that helps them hang these goals and metrics together in a really fresh and powerful and compelling way. And along those lines, you know, they just had the first meeting of the Chief Diversity Officers Council. And so they're really taking very positive and strong steps to embed that conversation in everything. And I have high hopes that that's something that really will endure, you know, because they're they're going to make it fundamental in so many of these programs. So I think we really have to start there. Um, and then I think as we look at how they're reporting their progress across their three main goals, you know, um, work workforce, customer experience, and then the business of government, what you see a lot of progress or a lot of reported progress on workforce. And I think the reason you see that more than even in the other two areas is because they see workforce as critical to the success across the board. If you don't solve the workforce challenges, you're not gonna be able to make progress on customer experience and business of government. So we've stayed in pretty close touch with the folks at OPM um, and they are making real progress on the hiring issues. I know those of us who watch the civil service space, you know, um, either as our as our pastime or our our day job, would like to see them move farther, faster, more, more, more. But I think we have to be realistic about the environment that we're in. 
And they really have done some significant things to streamline and simplify the hiring process. And we should give them credit where credit is due. What are the things that you've seen? And I don't ask that as a cynical question. I can understand why someone might think it might be. But what have you seen that gives you that optimism, Terry? Well, uh, first of all, they uh, were really intentional about expanding direct hire authority to support the um, infrastructure and uh, recovery programs. So they gave agencies a lot of flexibility. They published a handbook. You know, they knew they needed to get a lot of people on board quickly, and they took steps to do that. And now they're looking at institutionalizing that. They've made tremendous progress in pooled hiring certifications. That's a little wonky for perhaps everybody who doesn't watch this. Not for this show. Not for this show. There's no such thing, Terry. You know that. (laughs) But pooled hiring is making a big difference, right? You need to hire accountants. You need to hire accountants in every agency here's the list of people that that we know are qualified. And so starting to share those certifications is having an impact. I think we also have to talk about funding for federal internship programs, right? They're really committed to that. And that's a significant change. And another place where you see the equity value manifesting itself in process changes. And I think the fourth thing I would point to in hiring is a really positive steps towards skill-based hiring. Again, equity in in practice, but also really reflective of the kind of work that's going to be needing to be done, and not all of it requiring specific college degrees, but how can we recognize skills and bring the people in that, that have those skills for the future? One of the things that I think all of those four items that you just listed indicate is the commitment of the administration and the commitment of OPM to really reinvigorate the Office of Personnel Management from what it was before. I mean, we've covered a million times on this program um, the merger, the attempted merger in the Trump administration and the the fact that that got rolled back and that's not going to happen. And uh, Director Ahuja talked about it pretty directly at ELC a month or so ago. And was pretty point blank about the fact we got a lot of work to do, but they're trying to dig in and make that happen. And I know that's near and dear to your heart and, and your colleagues at Napa based on the work that y'all did on it. Absolutely. We're we're delighted to see OPM moving forward, the reinvigoration of the Chico Council and the collaboration that that goes along with that, their openness to new ideas and their I mean, they really recognize they've got a lot of work to do. So <clears throat> We are really uh, pleased to see that move forward. And kind of as we said up front, if you don't solve the people problems, uh, you're not going to be able to solve any of the others. And then, of course, back to our our point at the beginning, we want more, 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 more. They really do have to move forward into talent management and think about training and retention and those kinds of things. But if you don't have the people to train and retain, you know, it doesn't much matter. So focusing on the hiring piece is a good one. And then just yesterday, OPM also published a document um, with the specific metrics and how to compute them for how they're going to measure success on their PMA um, goals. And I think that's going to be really important. We should start to see that data be reported in their next quarterly reports. Um, And it's using data that's already available. and, And so I think that's really positive because So many times we hear talk about reform, but we don't actually see the measures and the evidence. 
this tells me that they're very committed both to actually doing the math, um, but also then using that evidence to drive next steps. And shout out to Ted Kalk because that's exactly what he went to OPM to do as the chief data officer there, was to right. build that kind of data infrastructure for every agency to use, right, Terry? Exactly. Um, and that was a key piece of our recommendations when we did our um, comprehensive assessment of OPM about a year and a half ago was they really needed to rebuild that data analytics capability. When that's built out and when that's mature in the way that you and your Napa colleagues envisioned, what will OPM be able to do today that it can't do uh, or can't do as well as it, it should? And same thing for the agencies. What will they be able to do or know or ask the data that they can't or can't do well enough today? Well, one of the key things we've always advocated for is a prospective look, an anticipatory look at what the needs of the federal government are going to be in the future. What they're setting up now um, is still very um, retrospective, right? How are we doing? How are we, how many more people did we hire? How many more of particular skill sets did we get in? How are employees engaged? But eventually, the goal has to be to be able to anticipate the needs of the federal workforce and design programs that are focused forward, not just backward. Um, what do you want to see regarding the president's management agenda at the two-year anniversary of it, Terry, that maybe doesn't exist today or, or is still in progress? Well, I, I will be looking more especially at the business of government side. Hmm. That part to me seems to be a little behind the other two. They're making real progress in customer experience. They're tackling real problems there. They just committed $100 million out of the Technology Modernization Fund for customer experience projects. But the business of government side seems to be behind to me. Now, maybe maybe they're not. Maybe there's a lot more that's happening behind the scenes that they haven't shared but there's so many opportunities there for technology investment, for shared services, um, acquisition reform with, again, their values of equity and dignity in there is important. And from Napa's perspective, one of the things we've really been focused on and working on is grants reform, which is also part of the business of government. So two years on, not only do I want to see OPM moving towards that proactive anticipatory model um, and continued success in CX, but I'm really going to be interested to see how much progress they're making on streamlining the back end uh, business processes, because that's really where tremendous efficiencies, I think, still remain to be gathered. I think the challenge there, too, though, from a budget perspective, is it's not very sexy and it's not very, Congress hasn't historically been receptive to investing in that kind of stuff. Well, that's partly true. But if it's framed properly in terms of providing resources through efficiencies for other opportunities, then it can it can generate a li little bit more attention. Terry Gurton, it's great to talk to you as always, my friend. Thank you. Always a pleasure, Francis. You can find all the resources Terry mentioned in today's show notes at thedailyscooppodcast.com. I'm Francis Rose, the host of the Daily Scoop podcast. Coming on tomorrow's show, more on the president's management agenda. One of the architects of President Obama's PMA, former controller at OMB, Dave Mater, is on Friday's Daily Scoop podcast. You can get that show at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or wherever you listen to shows, and always at thedailyscooppodcast.com.
The Defense Department says it'll hold organizations inside the department responsible for hitting the deadlines in its new Zero Trust strategy and roadmap. DOD officials released the public version of the strategy and roadmap last Tuesday. Andy Stewart is National Security and Government Senior Strategist for Cybersecurity at Cisco. Andy, welcome. Thanks for joining me today. What's your broad takeaway before we get into some of the specifics of the Zero Trust strategy and roadmap out from DOD? Welcome. Hey, Francis. Uh, thanks. It's great to be here. Uh, always enjoy uh, chatting with uh, the team and I, yeah, I think uh, this is a pretty impressive document that the Department of Defense has uh, released to provide really a clear strategic guidance for all DOD components in terms of how they adopt uh, zero trust in a strategic way with a strategic approach. Um, they do some very good definitions around capability pillars, and we can probably dump, jump into that. But I think what's uh, you know kind of most groundbreaking about this uh, is often people get a little wrapped around the axle about what's in zero trust is it zt uh, and a is it segmentation is it endpoint security is it firewall is it identity uh and this document and strategy really takes it much more beyond the it solution uh and, and talks about how it may certainly include some products but it's really not a capability or a device that you buy it's a journey uh, and it requires all of the dod components to integrate zero trust capabilities and technologies and solutions but do that along with processes and how they bring uh, those requirements and day-to-day muscle movements uh, that their staffing and training and personnel must do. So when you really think about it, uh, it really addresses the fact that you know zero trust is much more holistically defined uh, from principles to strategy, uh, to capabilities, to technologies and features, uh, and the people and the processes matter just as much as the technologies. Yeah, and it struck me that one of the first, well, the first um, bullet that John Sherman writes about in the introduction to it is culture. Like the, he understands that that's an important piece of getting people to buy into it, not just as you say, putting technology in place. That's not the only piece of this. No, I, for sure. Uh, so I operated uh, in the DoD for thirty years, and especially when I was in command, uh, culture was the thing I worked on every day because. Uh, I think, uh, you know, somewhere somebody uh, like Drucker said, you know, culture eats uh, uh, strategy uh, for breakfast, words to that effect. Um, So, yeah, if you're not addressing the culture and if you're not bringing it into the organization and thinking about how to do that strategically, um, you may not have a winning strategy. Are there best practices for getting culture right in the cyber area? Or am I maybe thinking about it wrong because zero trust permeates so much of mission delivery operations? Well, I think it absolutely does permission uh, permeate uh, the landscape of delivering mission and capabilities. And so we have to remember that that underpinning um, the capabilities that the network brings and uh, that we are striving to meet with cybersecurity, what we're really talking about is delivering mission capabilities. So I think first and foremost, uh, a culture focus is that this is every bit uh, about enabling the mission. Uh, as it is just good security practices, uh, having a mission focus, uh, that is certainly must be part of the culture. Uh, and, you know, in the commercial world, for a banking, you know, uh, type of industry to understand why the network is important, security is important, it's pretty obvious that, you know, protecting uh, finances and resources and assets is important. Uh, and it's no different uh, in the DOD context. So certainly from a culture perspective, it's understanding that this is integral to the mission. Um I think the next part really is is about how do you work more efficiently, 
uh, and bring teams together from the networking team, from the security team, or even uh, the team that's building applications. How do they more efficiently work together with good technologies that provide processes that naturally integrate people? Uh, and so when you think about that in terms of operating sort of a platform approach is, is how we operate in the Department of Defense, you know, you, you naturally want to bring processes that work together uh, and capabilities that interact with each other. And I think that's a really key part about the strategy is it talks about, not only about the individual capabilities, but the idea that they have to actually work cross pillar uh, to really uh, uh, underpin the strategic benefits of what the strategy is pointing towards. I note that resilience is a theme all throughout this, Andy, and I wonder what resilience looks like in the context of a, of this zero trust strategy, of the ultimate outcome of the strategy and roadmap. I guess resilience is a term that can mean different things to different people. So I wonder what the, the right definition in your view is to attach to that word uh, to get the results the department wants. I think of resilience as the ability to protect the integrity of every aspect of the organization's mission uh, to withstand unpredictable threats or changes. So back when we were talking about what it means to the culture, it means uh, you know we have to keep operating and keep the mission going. Uh, despite changes, despite disruptions. And yeah, we've just been through, uh, the world's been through a lot of disruptions over the last couple of years. Uh, and how do we actually come back after those disruptions and emerge stronger? Uh, and so getting zero trust right uh, is essential for uh, security resilience for defense and government uh, because it under mission, underpins those critical missions. So you kind of answered my next question, which was going to be resilience isn't just a technology issue it's also people and processes too and you talked about culture a little bit and how that fits in but i imagine it's it's all three of those things have a resilience component too right uh, absolutely and you know i think uh, you know we've seen resilience uh, across the gamut of things like supply chain operations like um you know uh, certainly uh, in terms of just day-to-day -day operations and Underpinning a lot of those operations for any organization or, or any agency uh, is the ability to securely uh, connect and deliver information to the right people uh, and protect that information. And so when you think about it that way, you know, networking and security underpins really all, just about all the functions of any organization. You rightly pointed out that this is impactful, not just at the enterprise-wide level in DOD, but the services, the uh, components, all of the individual offices and so on have marching orders now. What do you recommend at like the service level or the office level, um, fourth estate, all of that? They're all gonna, all gonna have responsibilities along these lines. What does that look like a little bit further down the chart in your view, Andy? Sure. Well, and, you know, I, I always refer back to uh, NIST 800-207 that says, you know, the first thing you really need to do before you start on a zero trust journey is make sure you've done all those things in terms of understanding what are the critical missions and processes, uh, defining risk around those, uh, and so that you develop good policy for all of those different types of um, uh, parts of the organization uh, that contribute to mission and where you want to take risk. And so these are things that are defined uh, in any organization's uh, risk management framework. So NIST says, you know, you really should have done your homework up front before you start uh, on your path down to zero trust. So understanding what the risk to mission is, how uh, to implement those policies, and then thinking about how can I do that in an efficient way. 
Uh, and so when you do that, it, and it really gets into a, um, you know, the, the OODA loop, uh, observe, orient, decide, and act, uh, which, you know, we all grew up with uh, in the military, uh, you know, for a zero trust approach is about establishing trust uh, based on um, those principles, based on understanding what's in the enterprise, enforcing least privilege. So that means enforcing that policy, which is based off of your risk to tolerance, uh, continuously monitoring. Uh, so being proactive and understanding where there might be uh, potential behavior or, or things you need to tighten up in those, those policies, uh, and then be able, being able to respond. So being able to act uh, to changes uh, or uh, significant threats uh, or, or uh, issues uh, that you might encounter in the enterprise. So it's really that four-step process, which is really the OODA loop that we all grew up with. How will the department itself or people inside the department or outsiders like us be able to measure to determine if this was successful at some future point? And when is a future point, how far out, I guess, is reasonable to say, okay, it looks like we're on track and we're achieving, or it looks like the department is on track and achieving what they set out to do here? Well, I think you know the first outcome obviously is better security uh, and continuity of missions. Uh, so that that's um, you know sort of the, the obvious goal. But I think one of the other ones that the strategy gets at, uh, and that we often see with uh, some of our customers, and certainly uh, as we've uh, protected our own Cisco enterprise uh, across ninety four countries uh, with you know hundred thousand users, uh, is you see better return on investment, uh, more efficiency. Uh, from taking things with a zero trust approach. Uh, zero trust is not about creating expense and depth. You should actually see efficiencies by bringing those teams together, as I mentioned earlier, for better processes, better procedures, uh, and capabilities that are working across those pillars uh, to achieve those strategic effects. Um, I think everybody agrees that zero trust is a journey. Uh, so I don't know that you're ever really done, uh, and certainly technology is going to continue to change. Uh, the mission uh, imperatives are going to continue to push the, the bounds and the requirements of uh, networks outside uh, traditional boundaries. So we just went through this with you know having to have a bunch of the workforce uh, working from home. Uh, but certainly as we deliver new capabilities uh, through applications, uh, we're going to uh, continue to uh, want to ensure that the network is protected uh, and continue to make sure we're taking a zero trust approach to everything. Andy Stewart of Cisco, it's great to have you on the show. Thanks for coming on. It's great to have you. Okay. You can read more about the new DOD zero trust strategy and roadmap in today's show notes, thedailyscooppodcast.com. Federal agencies have a 2027 deadline to move to zero emission light duty vehicles, according to an executive order from the Biden administration. The Government Accountability Office, though, sees some roadblocks to making that deadline. Katina Latham is acting director for physical infrastructure at GAO. Katina, excuse the terrible pun about roadblocks. Um, what does the landscape look like in the vehicle fleet in the federal government today? Thanks for coming on the program. Thank you for having me. So the federal fleet today covers the whole gamut of vehicles that you can think about. They cover over 600,000 vehicles. This includes your sedans, pickup trucks, SUVs, but also ambulances, buses for shuttle transportation and whatnot um, for more of the forest service. 
broader vehicles needed there. So a wide range of vehicles. You note that uh, the work that Congress asked you to do was to look at the composition use and location of federal fleets and the potential for the transition to electronic vehicles. And we'll talk about the transition in a moment. Um, What did you find and where did you find the vehicles primarily as you looked across the fleet, Katina? Well, we found those vehicles are all over the United States. They are in urban areas, they're in rural areas, and they're doing the day-to-day needs of the federal government. The sedans are providing transportation for employees and other vehicles, such as buses, are also um, shuttling services, so a wide range of services. I was fascinated by one chart in your work, Katina, the top 10 zip codes with the largest number of vehicles in the fleet. Now, I, I don't think anybody is surprised that the number one was uh, zip code in Washington, D.C. Number two was Norfolk, Virginia, and number three was Eglin Air Force Base. Those, I mean, I would have figured the large cities would have been the highest concentrations of vehicles. So it just speaks to the dispersion that you talked about a moment ago. What's the significance that you found about where these vehicles are located and what difference does the location of the vehicles make in the type of vehicles, the way that the agencies that have them are using them and so on? Well, I would say to that question, um, it would be, like you mentioned, in the Washington, D.C. area. Obviously, that's where we have a larger concentration of federal employees, so therefore there will be a larger need of the vehicles. Um, In terms of the types of use for the vehicles, um, you may find vehicles that are in more remote areas may have a greater need for SUVs um, or, or, you know, d- just vehicles that can handle various terrains. Um, so it could just really vary based on the location of the federal employees and their needs. You cite in this work a uh, number of challenges that may be presented by the law enforcement vehicles that agencies use. What are some of those challenges and, and what are some of the, the issues that you found with the law enforcement vehicles? We didn't particularly look at sort of issues with law enforcement vehicles. We just primarily looked at kind of the use and need and the numbers of those vehicles. Um, But obviously, uh, when you think about the types of vehicles that are needed to convert to electric fleet and the types of things that the law enforcement would need, um, they, as you pointed out, (laughs) in terms of location, they actually have more of the larger fleet so I think that's an aid. Those law enforcement agencies are agencies that are going to be further challenged by this transition to electric fleet. One of the th- uh, things that I hadn't considered before I read your work is that it's not just the vehicles themselves that's the issue. Uh, right now, it's not hard to find a location anywhere in the United States to pull up to a gas station, put gas in a car. It's significantly more challenging, especially I imagine in some of these remote locations to find a place to plug the vehicle in. And then you layer on what you just said a moment ago about the law enforcement vehicles and the, the, just the sheer power that they will require over and above a sedan, that kind of thing. What's the infrastructure look like now? And what is your sense of what the infrastructure will need to look like in order to meet the goal of the executive order to hit the 2027 deadline in order for these vehicles to be able to be powered once the government acquires them? Well, the infrastructure now is the one big piece that the vehicles will need are the charging station. Um, Some of the challenges that the government's going to face is vehicle availability, as you mentioned with the law enforcement, you know, they will need 
um, to be able to access or purchase these vehicles. Also, um, they will have to overcome the cost upfront cost of purchasing a charging station. So those are some of the challenges that they are facing now. What about the range of vehicles? When EVs first started to become popularized, there was a lot of discussion about how far a vehicle could go on a full charge. Uh, and that was uh, determined to be uh, one of the potential difficulties. Uh, is your thing going to run out of juice before you get to the next charging station because charging stations were not as common then as they are today? What does that look like in terms of the federal fleet, Katina? The federal fleet today, we found in our study, generally on average, they do run relatively low mileage. Um, you mentioned the statement about needing to go from place to place. Um, on average, these vehicles are not going sort of the full mileage. I think, what is it, 200 miles you can get on a charge um, for your vehicle. On a daily basis, the vehicles are on average not going such far distance. So in terms of that, we think that is a challenge that they would be able to overcome. Overall, what are the most important things that agencies will need to consider as they're looking at these transitions, Katina? Well, first and foremost, I think they will need to just, this is a transition. So this will require a culture shift, a culture shift in how you think about the needs for the vehicles as a question that you ask in terms of the distance that your vehicles will need to travel. So you just really will have to, you know, make that transition. You also will have to think about um, the challenges you may face with purchasing, acquiring vehicles. You have to think about the charging station needs, as I mentioned, and just other overall supply challenges. I mean, you mentioned recently just just buying a vehicle yourself. Um, you know, to go out and buy an electric vehicle today may not be available. Uh, so we'd have to think about just those challenges overall. Katina, thanks for coming on talking about your work. Appreciate having you on the program. Thank you for having me. You can find a link to Katina's work in today's show notes, thedailyscooppodcast.com. The Daily Scoop Podcast is available on all the podcast platforms. If you don't want to miss a show, you can subscribe and get the show every weekday on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or wherever else you get your shows, and on any device you get your shows. And if you really like the Daily Scoop podcast, leave us a five-star rating and a review. It'll help more people find the show. The Daily Scoop podcast is a production of the Scoop News Group in Washington, D.C. James Mahoney and Carlin Fisher help me put the show together, and the entire Scoop News Group team contributes. The Daily Scoop podcast is back tomorrow. Until then, I'm Francis Rose. Thanks for listening.